This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome to Global Dialogue, your virtual conversation with international affairs specialists. I'm Patrick Ryan, founder and president of the Tennessee World Affairs Council, coming to you from Printer's Alley in Music City, USA. During the social distancing period of the uh, pandemic response, we've had to pivot our speaker programs, usually presented in person at Belmont University to the now popular Zoom technology. Don't we all wish we had some stock back in January? I invite you to check out our other virtual programs, a Tuesday afternoon review of current affairs that I do with Ambassador Dick Bowers and Global Nashville with Carl Dean, which will alternate with this speaker's program on Tuesday evenings. You can check out our website, tnwac.org, for announcements of programs and topics. Also make sure you're on the council's email list where you can sign up for the TNWAC uh, newsletter to keep you informed about everything that's going on. Before we start, let me add a, a welcome to members of World Affairs Councils uh, joining us from around the country. This event is part of the C by C, that's a Council by Council, Amplified, an Ideas Summit presented by the World Affairs Councils nationwide with the theme of putting the world back together. This week, councils from around the US are working together to highlight the power of our network. We encourage everyone joining us today to support your local World Affairs Council and to enjoy as many of the great virtual programs that can fit into your days and evenings this week. And don't forget the bonus Mother's Day cooking class on Saturday. As for this World Affairs Council, we're contributing three webinars to the summit. The news review we did this afternoon, this evening's speaker program on US-China relations, and tomorrow afternoon's special presentation on Iran with a, a terrific panel of speakers from the US and Europe. The summit is a great idea, and I hope it becomes a regular event. A big hat tip to our friends at the uh, World Affairs Councils uh, of America and uh, to the uh, Connecticut World Affairs Council. Uh, they've been uh, instrumental in, in putting all that together. I'd also uh, like to remind everyone that uh, this is Giving Tuesday. Uh, and that Giving Tuesday is a global generosity movement unleashing the power of people and organizations to transform their communities and the world. So I invite you to support the Tennessee World Affairs Council with your gift at tnwac.org donate. Now please consider a monthly donation of just $5 to make a difference. And don't feel bound by the, uh, the number 10 on the slide there, your generosity is appreciated. Uh, please get your uh, questions ready in the uh, Q&A uh, section of the, uh, of the screen there at the bottom, and uh, we'll uh, start uh, lining up uh, your questions uh, as we go through our, our speakers. Let me now uh, introduce our guest uh, this evening for uh, Global Dialogue. Uh, Jeremy Goldcorn is Editor-in-Chief of SupChina.com, that's S-U-P China, and co-host of the Seneca podcast. He moved to China in 1995 and became managing editor of Be Beijing's first independent English language entertainment 
Magazine. In 2003, he founded the website and research firm Danway, which tracked Chinese media, markets, politics, and business. It was acquired in 2013 by the Financial Times. While in China, Jeremy published and edited several magazines, books, and websites. He also lived in a workers' dormitory and produced a documentary film about African soccer players in Beijing. One, uh, one special uh, uh, item in his uh, resume that I'd like to share a little pictorial of as we read through. Uh, Jeremy also um, uh, included among his adventures a trip he took riding a bicycle from Peshawar to Kathmandu via Kashgar and Lhasa. Uh, I don't know if John, are you ready to, uh, to top that? Uh, he moved to Nashville, Tennessee in 2015 and is a board member of the Tennessee China Network. He's a uh, graduate of the University of Cape Town. John Scanapieco is a shareholder in the Nashville office of Baker Donaldson and is co-leader or is chair of the uh, firm's global business team. John provides strategic guidance and counsel to businesses and individuals regarding their existing global operations or to those contemplating global expansion. He also advises companies that are contemplating pursuing a China strategy, as well as those companies that are currently doing business in China or with China-based businesses. John assists U.S. manufacturing companies with their activities overseas and foreign companies desiring to expand operations to the United States. He is a board member of the National Area Chamber of Commerce uh, International Business Council and is a member of the board of the Jap uh, Japan American Society of Tennessee. He has been recognized by Mid-South Super Lawyers in International Law. Around town, John has been chair of the Community Resource Center, a key element of Nashville's Super Tuesday tornado relief and the supply line to the front lines of poverty in Nashville. John also serves on the board of Sister Cities of Nashville and, and more. And last note, John is the honorary consul of the United Kingdom to the state of Tennessee. John, you probably get invited to all the good parties. Uh, Jeremy, John, uh, thank you for taking time on Cinco de Mayo to explain what's going on in the U.S.-China relationship. Thank you Jer very much, Pat. Jeremy, yeah, uh, I'm going to hand it to you first uh, to give us uh, your assessment of, uh, of what's going on. But let me simply offer as a preamble uh, that the last two weeks have seen the bilateral bitterness factor running to the end of the scale. Talks about decoupling and some calling for punishing China over the pandemic. Today's headline, for example, uh, uh, his, the he headline of note, uh, as Trump blames China, Beijing directs fury at his top diplomat, in which the Chinese state media called uh, the Secretary of State uh, evil and a liar. So what's going on? Yeah, uh, these are uh, very uh, troubled times for anybody who has any kind of emotional, or financial, or political investment in the U.S.-China relationship. I would say the only single issue on which there's any bipartisan consensus at all in the United States right now is the need to get tough on China. Um, <clears throat> US-China relations were already at a very low point before COVID-19 and the pandemic, it's very clear now, is only going to make the relations much worse. Um, so why are relations so bad? Why were they so bad even before the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, there are a bunch of reasons. And if I can start with America's reasons, why we have a number of legitimate grievances with China. 
I'll list uh, a non-inclusive list, but um, many of these things are things that have been irritating the relationship for a number of years, and these have come to a head in the past few years. And some of it is because of uh, the Trump administration's um, more aggressive posture to China, but many of these things have been building uh, long before Trump was in the White House. So, um, number one, I would say unfair business practices and industrial policies uh, in China that include um, what many perceive as extremely unfair uh, subsidies and state support for Chinese champion companies uh, and very murky relationships between companies like Huawei uh, and the Chinese security services. Uh, another big factor is China's militarization of the South China Sea, which has proceeded apace uh, under the leadership of Xi Jinping since 2012. Uh, there's hacking and espionage, theft of uh, American intellectual property. Uh, we have many wholly non-reciprocal arrangements in a huge range of fields, ranging from what uh, Chinese uh, companies and individuals are allowed to invest in in the United States versus what American companies and individuals are allowed to invest in in China to the treatment of journalists. And China, of course, has just expelled um, the cream of the American journalistic crop with uh, pretty much all of the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and um, Washington Post bureaus being cleaned out by the Chinese foreign ministry. And uh, the last point, perhaps, is there really is a, a fairly hellish catalogue of human rights abuses that are, are going on in China and that have got a lot worse under the leadership of Xi Jinping, ranging from the internment camps in Xinjiang, which are interning perhaps as many as two million Muslim Uyghurs, to uh, more journalists, activists, and civil society actors behind bars, um, than I had ever seen in 20 years of living in China from 1995 to 2015. Um, and there are other grievances too. Um, and not to say that China doesn't have grievances with the United States, but these, um, these problems are very real. And some of them have been neglected for, the, for years. Some of them haven't, but haven't really been sorted out. Um, and it is absolutely true that uh, the US needs um, to act on, on, on some of these issues. Um, and now we have COVID-19, um, and it is indeed true that the Chinese government was not completely transparent about the origins, uh, especially in the early days of the outbreak. And of course, we are still unable to really take them at their word about what is really going on in China. So the rest of the world, and this is not just the United States, is right to at the very least question the Chinese official narrative. Um, but uh, my fear is that right now in the United States, the, the bipartisan anti-China mood, uh, which is extremely noticeable in Washington DC, but is now becoming a lot more widespread. Um, there was a recent Pew survey of Americans, which indicated that uh, views of China are trending much, much more negatively uh, in recent months. So the, these extremely negative views of China, I think, are blinding us to the, the dangers ahead and blinding us to um, what perhaps might be a, a wiser path. 
it's not possible for us to simply economically decouple from China. We have too much uh, mutual investment and commerce for us to suddenly say, oh, we're not going to do business with China. That's just not possible. That would hurt us more than as much as it would hurt them. Um, and who wants a war, a, a hot war or a financial war or any kind of war? Um, I mean, some are already describing the current situation as a new Cold War. Um, and that might be as, as good as it gets. So um, I, I believe we need to put a lot more thought into what did go wrong in the relationship with China uh, and what we could do to change it. I think we also need to really consider how our actions and rhetoric affect the choices that the Chinese Communist Party and, uh, and its leader Xi Jinping will make. Because a lot of what they do is responsive to American rhetoric and American decisions. But right now, there's a one note blame China chorus, uh, and it's drowning out all the other voices, which I believe is to the detriment of our decision making. And I think this is going to harm our companies and it's going to harm our political standing and it's going to harm our strength um, uh, on the international stage. Um, and a final note just about how COVID-19 is exacerbating this. Um, in the last few days, the, the, the administration has uh, dialed up the rhetoric about um, this theory that the, the virus was either intentionally or by mistake, and by mistake leaked from uh, the Wuhan Virology Lab. Now, there is a virology lab in Wuhan that researches uh, coronaviruses, and they have been researching uh, viruses that come from bats, and it's, it's a very nice conspiracy theory, but nobody has yet come forth with any shred of evidence that this is in fact what happened. And what is, I think, common sense is that just like SARS in 2003, this was something that happened naturally. This certainly wasn't something that China did on purpose to infect its own people. So by constantly harping on this completely unproven theory, we right now are uh, really aggravating an already very, very stressed situation. And in some ways, I believe we're, we're, we're pushing China into a corner where they are feeling bound to fight back with their own conspiracy theories. And this is not to put, you know, lessen any blame on China for its actions and inactions and for some of the extremely aggressive propaganda and uh, um, rhetoric coming out of its diplomats. But uh, on, on, on this side of the Pacific, we're, we're not helping things by promoting these unproven theories that are uh, causing a great deal of distress that will result in action from the Chinese state. So, I mean, um, COVID-19 is making US-China relations much worse than they were, and they were already pretty bad. And our own behavior is making it much more difficult for America to rally its friends and its allies in any campaign to change China's behavior, if that's what we really want to do. And let me end there. Thank you, Jeremy, for that. Certainly uh, a good uh, scene setter and a background and context as to uh, what's happening. Uh, yes, we are at a, a dangerous moment in, uh, in the relationship and decisions are being made while politics 
and emotions are, are running high. Uh, John, you've been engaged in the US-China commercial activities uh, as an attorney and an advisor. Uh, so you've been able to look under the hood of the relationship for quite some time with the key piece being uh, that trade relationship. Uh, but I think you're also sensitive to the uh, politics between our countries and also uh, to the national security uh, issues at play. So uh, tell us how, how you see it. What's, uh, what's happening in the relationship? Right. I, I would echo a lot of what Jeremy said. I, and I think the, the, the key is some of the anti-China rhetoric that we're seeing right now. Um, you know, it, I again, I think we all can acknowledge that there's a lot wrong with our relationship with China and the way China approaches trade and investment. Um, but I don't believe that bellowing from the highest point in Washington, D.C., to the New York Post or Fox News or any of these others, that it's all China's fault is really going to really achieve anything. In, as Jeremy has already pointed out, it's actually leading to, a, to, I think, the opposite response, which is now China feels, whether it's to save face or otherwise, that it has to respond with maybe its own conspiracy theories, or it has to retaliate against U.S. interests, whether it's business interests or other humanitarian interests. You know, if you think about it, uh, because of maybe some of the missteps that occurred in China early and even throughout, really, uh, its response to COVID-19 within its own country, President Xi, some will say, was weakened and appears weak uh, to maybe uh, its citizens in China. And therefore, if the President of the United States and others in his cabinet are lobbing these grenades at him in particular, and China as well, that, you know, again, he can't appear weak and therefore must respond. And then you end up getting this tit for tat kind of uh, response, which at the end of the day really serves no one. Uh, it doesn't serve the, the people of China, and it doesn't serve the people here in the United States. So, for example, you know, the U.S. is blaming China. The U.S. has now imposed um, export restrictions on some uh, PPE. So then China retaliates. And, you know, while they won't call it an export restrictions, they've now imposed rules that require anyone exporting PPE from China to register. Uh, with CFDA and others to uh, certify that the products they're making uh, meet whatever, uh, you know, say, importing countries' requirements, uh, and then also requiring some level of uh, customs inspections. Again, all of this is basically an implicit uh, export restriction, and it limits the ability of these, of these products to come out, of the, uh, out when at a time when we really need these products. I mean, I think it goes without saying, I don't care what source of news you, you listen to, and I'm not trying to be political at all. But there are shortages, um, you know, in, in my community, in other states, uh, throughout really the United States. We've got the president now advocating for people to go back to work. Um, but at the same time, uh, governors and others have imposed restrictions that require all these employers to have PPE, but they can't get it. It's not enough. China has a lot of it, and yet there it sits in a warehouse. I've got several clients with their uh, products they've bought and paid for just sitting in a warehouse, uh, hoping that maybe this week we'll be able to fully export those products here to the United States. So, you know, this, this back and forth, I just don't think is very productive. I think Jeremy highlighted this a little bit is, you know, if we would go to our allies and make common cause with them and then diplomatically talk to China about some of these issues. Again, I'm not saying we'll get significant results, but we just might. At least, though, in terms of maybe uh, helping uh, fight this virus, which is a, 
it is really a, a, a global issue, okay, not just a uh, you know, a U.S. issue or a France issue or an Italy issue or a China issue. It affects us all, and only by working together can we really, I believe, fight this virus. And and so this this blame game just really, to me, is not um, anything that I think is really going to lead to any productive, um, you know, uh, re results. And then that gets us into some of the bigger trade issues, I think, that Jeremy mentioned as well. You know, we still have uh, the 301 tariffs uh, with China, and despite uh, pleas from, I think, really all corners, most corners anyway, of the United States, business communities and others, um, asking for relief from these tariffs, because, you know, it's anywhere from a 10 to 25% tax, basically, on goods that are coming in, goods that are needed uh, here in the United States, especially around the PPE while the administration is giving some exemptions, you know, you, it's still a time-consuming process. It's very expensive, and the likelihood of success is very low. And so, as a result, now you have this added tax um, that is being imposed on uh, healthcare facilities trying to acquire PPE, states, other government uh, organizations, uh, businesses that need it uh, in order to reopen, if that's the goal. Um, and it's at a time when really uh, they can ill afford, you know, this extra tax. And then on products that may be coming in that China would have made, um, you're now adding, again, additional tax that consumers, you know, we've had the highest unemployment since the depression here in the United States. Many, many people are out of work. Um, many others have had their compensation, uh, uh, you know, cut 50%, 30%. And on top of that, now we still have to pay this added tax. So again, I, I think some of these things are really going to start hurting not only here in the United States, but also globally as well, because you also have China at the, at, you know, at the beginning of this crisis. Um, I was getting many, many calls from my clients saying, hey, I'm having difficulty getting my products or my components, pieces from China. Well, now I think it's reverse. As we know, China is an export-driven economy, but its export markets are all closed. And so even though China, which suffered significantly economically, I mean, I, I don't remember a time really um, where China had, uh, you know, negative growth in a quarter, uh, especially of this magnitude. And I don't really see it improving all that much. Um, it'll, it won't be probably as negative, but it won't be improving to the levels that we used to see. Because again, I don't see the markets of the U.S. and Europe and other places really, there's no demand now, the supply side. Um, of that demand uh, is is still going to be weak, um, even though I'm I'm hearing malls are opening up and stores are opening up. The demand, I think, on the consumer side and even from the business side is going to be very low. I mean, let's let's face it. Even if the auto OEMs open up, um, is what's the demand really going to be for their products? Um, and do and, and is there going to be sufficient demand that will help you know China recover? So I think that's going to put pressure too on this relationship. Is China's maybe uh, a weak recovery um, will we'll put some internal pressure there, and that will then probably likely spill over to its relationship with uh, you know the, the United States. And then we have now these these calls, and this is not unique to the United States, but we'll focus on the United States for essential or critical products and components and pieces to be made here in the United States or in France or Italy or wherever else in the world. But again, I don't really think that sounds great in the middle of a crisis. You're right. We need to bring this all back home. But at the same time, you know, with technology being what it is and evolving so quickly and the skills that are necessary to produce the pieces and the parts and some of the raw materials, it is very unlikely that any one country 
or even one company for that matter, um, will have can keep up with all that, can have all the skills that they need to be able to produce these things and to assemble these things. And the same thing with our country. And I think what you're going to end up with is a lot of fragmented, let's look at, let's say by country by country, these little islands of where they produce some, but not all. I mean, let's look at food, for example. There was a time, I remember in the United States, when you couldn't get avocados except during a very limited period of time, right? But now, because of global supply chains, we can get avocados anytime we want. We can get a lot of food, basically anything we want, pretty much anytime. Now, again, with the disruption to the supply chains by this COVID-19, it's really highlighted, I think, our reliance on some of these the global markets for our supply. But I, I don't believe you can produce all the avocados, tomatoes, wheat, this, that, that you need here in the United States. Same thing with the pieces and parts that are necessary to really drive the U.S. economy. Um, uh, and, and it's going to lead to, uh, I think, higher prices and anti-competitiveness. And, you know, at the same time, I think we as consumers will have less product for us. So, again, this U.S.-China thing, I think, let me just saying, look, it was bad before COVID, and it like if we keep these grenades, we keep this about you know, this battle with China, I need like USSR, US kind of absolutely or very little of any economic. Here, it's just the opposite. We have very significant economic relationship. That this is really going to hurt us. We need foreign investment, and I have many clients that are now, they are emerging um, at investing. And I don't fire some kind of technology back to China. I mean bringing their technology, which is cutting edge, to the United States, creating greenfield investments, hiring U.S. workers, um, and, and helping some of these hurting. Provide, provide jobs. But again, if we get into this fight, it'll years ago where some of my projects were stalled. And it was just retaliation for what was going on at these higher levels. And again, I believe that this a American. It sounds great, but it just doesn't work. So I'll end it there. Thanks, John. Uh, you were cutting out there a little bit towards the end, so we'll let your uh, your Wi-Fi set settle down. Uh, Jeremy, I'll I'll okay. uh, toss this back to you as we wait for uh, some more questions to uh, come into the uh, the question queue. Just a reminder to uh, to all our friends uh, from across the World Affairs Council's network and our our folks here in uh, Nashville. Uh, please uh, write some questions up and uh, put them in the queue and we'll get to them uh, in just a second. But uh, Jeremy and, and John, uh, lobbing grenades, um, it, it, it's back and forth. And, and I think you mentioned uh, that it was also at Xi Jinping, uh, but we've, uh, so it sounds like there are internal issues on both sides that are affecting decision makers. Uh, we have the US elections coming up here and uh, we've already seen the uh, uh, the armament coming out to attack one another. And China, there was a, um, I think a Republican talking point going around the, the Senate asking for uh, senators, uh, Republican senators to, uh, to go after China and not to go after some other issues. Uh, so, 
on both sides, there are internal divisions that are ratcheting up the uh, the disagreements and overreaction will definitely hurt both sides. So uh, who will get us off the ledge and how? Who's who's uh, got some influence who might uh, be seeking um, or is that uh, <laughs> Is that the You're asking me to solve world peace. Or... <laughs> I was going to say, I, say, I want to hear this because I want to bottle it and sell it. Because that Jeremy, this is a $64 gazillion dollar question. Jeremy, you have 15 <laughs> minutes to solve the problem. I, you know, I, I don't know, Pat. I, 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 that, I mean, that's a great question. Um, and one that scarily, I have not even the faintest idea how to answer. Um, because, uh, you know, as I think I said at the beginning, I mean, one of the things that worries me is that the bipartisan consensus on the need to get tough on China has become dogma in DC and, and not just in DC anymore. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so you see uh, the Biden campaign having to respond to Trump's rhetoric on China and the Beijing Biden stuff with uh, a similar ad attacking Trump for being weak on China. And, um, you know, whatever you think of the politics of, uh, you know, between uh, these two gentlemen and their parties, um, it, it seems to me that, uh, you know, we're in such a rush to get tough on China that we're not even thinking about how we're going to harm ourselves uh, by doing that. You know, it's a shouting match. There's no strategy. Um, so I, I don't know who could, um, uh, you know, climb, help us climb down. Um, one of the issues I saw in the Q&A, somebody um, wrote, um, David Beckman wrote, to what extent might Trump's need to appear a strong man inflame the situation? I think that is already inflaming the situation a great deal. But one of the troubles is that Xi Jinping is also somebody who needs to be a strong man. He has spent the last... Um, uh, six years um, building up his image as a sort of infallible leader. Uh, and he also wants to come off blameless. And th that's one of the scary things about this time is that you have two leaders who perhaps have personally so much at stake that they are willing to risk uh, world peace <laughs> for, um, for their own personal political fortunes. Um, Obviously, a change in administration would give the United States uh, some kind of chance to reset, uh, but not necessarily. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the politics, the domestic politics in the United States, I mean, I, I remember that Hillary Clinton, before the 2016 election, who had been a supporter of TPP, right. which the Trans-Pacific um, Trade Agreement, which um, in my view, was a very good idea that was supposed to get like-minded allies uh, and, uh, and trading partners on the same page with regards to a bunch of standards from labor rights to, you know, product standards. Um, Hillary Clinton had been a supporter, but in, during the, the, the lead-up to the 2016 election, uh, she became ever more critical of TPP. Uh, I think in reaction to uh, Trump's um, repudiation of the deal. And I, I think tearing up that deal really harmed America. Um, but we're seeing a similar dynamic take, take place right now, which is that everybody wants to be tough on Beijing. 
Um, but there's still no strategy. So yeah, I'm sorry, I don't have an answer on how we can climb down. I, I would hope that um, maybe events like this and um, uh, a more informed discussion of, of the real issues at place and also what, maybe what's really important is what we have to lose as Americans uh, if this thing goes really south. Um, uh, both as consumers, you know, goodbye, nice, cheap stuff at Walmart. Um, goodbye, global economic growth. Goodbye, a million different uh, trade and financial relationships sure. that have actually been beneficial to American companies and American people. Um, so, yeah, I, in more events like this, I don't know, more Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, but I, but I, I think John, Jeremy, let, let I, me, I think he's John. Oh, let me ahead. let me give you a, a shot at this. But uh, be, before you you do, uh, let me add uh, the question from Kenneth Foster: uh, Are there influential parts of the U.S. business community that will work to prevent the U.S.-China relationship from continuing to deteriorate? You would think that it would be a natural uh, preserve of uh, corporate America to uh, keep things, uh, you know, either. Uh, back to where they were or, or some improved uh, state in the relationship? I mean, John can probably speak uh, on this at length, but just a quick uh, two cents from me, which is that until I think about two, three years ago, uh, the Fortune 500, the American blue chip companies were the ballast in the US-China relationship. Uh, they were the people that were lobbying the government to keep relations smooth, at least. Uh, and that has changed somewhat in the last few years as some, many American companies have become increasingly disillusioned uh, with their treatment in China. Um, so I, I think that's still true. I, I, I think that, um, you know, American companies are still the ballast in the relationship, uh, but it seems to have become a lot more complicated and there's a lot more resentment, some of which is, natural and you know nothing wrong with it right I, and i think jeremy's right so yeah it was several years ago it was always the business community that was pushing the administration to not be so tough and to work through whatever these issues were but i think many of them uh as as president xi uh toughened up uh you know in china and was was asserting control i think i think the party looks at control as its vehicle to you know china reaching its 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 great peak and they also need champion uh chinese companies and so any foreign company then is a threat to that that possibility and so in china and in elsewhere these us companies were being mistreated in china and at the same time they're having a lot of their ip stolen and so that has really, I think, as Jeremy pointed out, that has really turned the tide. And so what used to be the folks you could always rely on to say, hey, I get it. There are problems because no one's saying there's not problems. It's just, you know, it, it's like, you know, everyone's diagnosed the illness, but how do we cure it has been the, the subject of debate. And they were always willing to work more with China. And now um, many uh, companies I know and companies that to me doesn't make any sense really, uh, they'll be big supporters of, the, of the Trump administration is doing. But I think at the end of the day, it's really going to require, and for lack of a better term, more adults in the room that recognize 
that, look, we're not going to solve all these problems. We're not going to probably be able to bring China all the way to where we want to go. But if we can get folks to really look at multilateral relationships, so for example, rejoining TPP, which had for us was not so much an economic uh, gain. It was this geopolitical kind of strategic gain in supporting our Asian allies and creating a big block for trade in that region so that a lot of those countries didn't have to look to China for whatever it may be, for economic support, for trade relationships. And the same thing with Europe. So if we could ever come to an agreement with Europe, now you have basically NAFTA, right, which is the Americas, you, and other and other agreements that we have within the Americas, you have TPP, and then you have an, an EU, say Americas kind of free trade agreement. That that really represents a real significant part of world GDP, world economy, and really at that point, you know, China, you want to participate in this, you need to accomplish certain things, not the the goals that we gave China to 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 uh, be. Um, uh, allowed to enter the WTO, but actually goals that they have to achieve. And if they do, great. And again, we may not get them all the way where you want to be, but I think that's our best bet to get them to move in some way. And if they don't, then really what they're left with is uh, other parts of the world that really aren't going to be, they're not going to be able to provide the resources that China needs. Because remember, China is under-resourced and it needs to acquire these resources from all over the globe. In order to do so, it needs foreign currency to be able to do that. Hence, it sells all of its widgets all over the world. And if it can't sell those widgets to these markets, then it's not going to have the ability to go acquire these resources, which then puts it in jeopardy. You call it the party, uh, you know, uh, from really being able to control China. Um, and so I, I think something along those lines, again, I'm not saying this is the solution, but I think something that really takes this, this big chunk of the world GDP and makes it almost and puts a fence around it so that China cannot participate unless it makes some changes, then it has choices to make. It can either choose to maybe um, uh, uh, to meet some of these goals or, or not. And if it chooses not to, then of course there are consequences to that. And just like there are positive consequences if they do. Now, again, I don't know if this, if President Xi and, and, and his group, uh, if they'll ever be able to come to that place, because it seems like they believe control and, and, and things like that are, are the answer. Um, and again, in our current administration, you know, President Trump and his team uh, seem to hate multilateralism. And they like to be on this unilateral, this one-on-one -on -one kind of thing. Or really, I can honestly say, I think it's more America first, or as I like to say, America alone. And I'm not sure you can't alone bring about the change that's really needed. And, and, and hopefully maybe a change in administration or a change in some of the members of the administration um, will, will, will bring about some change that will allow us to I think have a more positive dialogue with China because we'll be doing it with with allies. But right now, it's just us alone. I, I just don't see how we're really going to accomplish a whole lot. That's uh, that's terrific. Thanks, John. Uh, we've got uh, a few more questions in the uh, the queue here, so I'm going to ask for short answers. 
I won't ask you to solve world peace, Jeremy, but uh, I just wanted to follow up on uh, this this current line, and then then we're going to shift to uh, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative and also the reaction within China to COVID-19. Uh, David uh, followed up his question. He asked, "How does the rest of East Asia, Japan, South Korea, etc., feel about, or how do they deal with the U.S.-China schism?" I mean, I, that's a that's a very interesting question. I, I think um, part of the sort of equation you have to add is that um, uh, the current administration has alienated the Japanese and Korean governments to a certain extent by, you know, for one example, demanding or you know, saying that they should pay for our our, our troops, our bases. Um, in, in Korea and Japan. And this has opened up an opportunity for China, um, a diplomatic opportunity, which they have not hesitate, hesitated to take advantage of. Um, I, I, you know, there's no love lost between Korea and China or between Japan and China in many, many ways. And they would, I, I, I think, um, more naturally tend to ally themselves with the United States. Um, but right now, our lack of leadership in dealing with this epidemic, this pandemic, um, and in many other things, is leaving them uh, wondering what they should do. Um, and this could mean that they actually end up getting closer to China, um, despite everything. Um, and the last month or so, certainly there have been a, a few signals uh, that both Japan and Korea are um, talking to China, certainly in a more friendly way than we are. John, do you want uh, anything on that or should we we'll just move on? I would agree. I think it's, it's a couple of things. It's this distrust of the US. Are we, are we a reliable? And I think a lot of are not because of some of these issues um, that Jeremy has expressed. But I think at the same time, you know, they need support, they need help. Uh, but there is also a distrust of China. I, I think they left, you know, kind of out there in the wind a little bit, especially as China has ramped up in the South China Sea. Um, and uh, it's not a positive for us. I think that's why we're back lateralism, where we can be uh, a trusted ally. And, and again, I think that will pay such significant dividends because my just from my dealings. Folks would prefer to deal with U.S. than China, but there's no U.S. to deal with, or U.S. is not reliable to deal with. Then you know you got to pick, you got to make your choices, and you're going to choose, uh, uh, you know, probably Beijing. Okay, a couple of things on Belt and Road. Uh, Campbell Layman from uh, Nashville. She's a student in our uh, WorldQuest program here, and an active participant in our program. So thanks again, Campbell. Uh, Campbell asked, "Do you think that any countries will consider leaving the Belt and Road Initiative if China does not come up with a plan in case of another virus?" And uh, Michael Adams asks, "What is the impact of the Chinese BRI investments and policy on U.S. international?" business interests, as well as U.S. political policies in the Belt and Road Initiative countries. How should the U.S. respond? So if you could uh, take those uh, two and, and uh, talk about Belt and Road, um, will, uh, will some countries consider leaving the Belt and Road? I think they're the ones that are engaged are up to their eyeballs. Jeremy? 
I think there are a few uh, things going on at the same time. On the one hand, um, in Africa, which is not the biggest part of the Belt and Road Initiative, but is a significant part, uh, there is an extraordinary amount of popular resentment against China right now um, because of uh, essentially racist treatment of African nationals living in the city of Guangzhou. Uh, and. Um, Although African governments and African elites generally have a very good relationship with the Chinese political and business elite, um, for the first time uh, in, in my memory, the, the, there has been this extraordinary popular reaction, uh, primarily on social media, but it is uh, pressuring African governments uh, to do something about what is perceived as extremely racist treatment of Africans in Guangzhou. So, for example, the Nigerian uh, House of Representatives uh, passed a motion to censure China for racist treatment of Nigerians. And the Nigerian government has, since just in the last week, started investigating Chinese immigrants in Nigeria for uh, immigration status and the legality of their businesses and this kind of thing. Um, so that's perhaps a, a slightly extreme example. Um, but the COVID-19 has definitely stressed the Belt and Road relationships especially on a people-to-people -people basis. And I think the, the real stress is going to come in that, um, is the money going to, is the spigot going to turn off? Because China is not in a great economic situation. I mean, nobody is, but, you know, China is suffering uh, just as much as anybody else. And there might be a lot less money for the kinds of extravagant projects that have made the Belt and Road Initiative attractive to other countries. So I, I don't see so much a problem from uh, like a new virus or, or, or even necessarily the actual Chinese handling of this virus, but from a, a slew of other issues ranging from uh, racism in China to uh, uh, suspicion of China because of the, the pandemic and then a, a lack of funds to, to fund the Belt and Road. John? And what was the other question about Belt and Road? It was um, uh, U.S. policies. Um, let's see. Well, we've uh, got the question out of the queue. Um, I believe it was uh, U.S. policies on Belt and Road. It's not in the queue anymore. Uh, how should the U.S. respond to to Belt and Road? Well, the, the I mean, to me, the only rational response is if you want as much influence as China, then you have to go out and do the diplomacy and make the investments. Um, or cede the ground to them. Uh, you know, the U.S. used to do this stuff. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, and that, that's what I was going to say. I mean, the soft power stuff, you know, again, we used to fund and provide a lot of foreign aid. That, with this Republican administration, has really taken a hit. Um, and, you know, again, they just don't see the value of it. But a lot of times when you're there and you're trusted and you're willing to help, I mean, look at even the, uh, uh, the uh, global uh, vaccine um, conference they just had. The U.S. wasn't even there. I mean, okay, maybe President Trump doesn't have time to go, but somebody from the U.S., in the past, we would have been there and we would have been leading some of those discussions. Even if we're going to be working on our own over here, on our own vaccine, okay, we're still going to be participating. And I think that absence is what has made the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative so successful. It's because there's this vacuum now 
and uh, China is more than willing uh, to step in. Uh, you know, I remember when I was negotiating one of my first uh, uh, disputes with the Chinese manufacturer, and I remember when it was translated to me in English from Chinese, they said, well, you allowed me to cheat you. That's literally what it, what it was translated. And it's like, we have allowed China to do this. I mean, I really think a lot of what's going on is is, is a result of our own doing. Um, and others are more than willing to take advantage of our absence or our, our, our less than trustworthiness, I'll say. So I think that's, so we need to get back out there in the world um, and really figure out how we can help, uh, whether it's through dollars or other other programs or other uh, you know other things that we can offer. But un until we do, um, you know, uh, I, I think the the Belt and Road Initiative will have some level of success, simply because there's just this vacuum. Um, and we should probably add that, that I mean it's got a lot worse under the Trump administration, but I, I don't think this problem started with, with Donald Trump. Uh, you know, especially in places like Africa, uh, I mean, a con you know, places, the huge continent of Africa, sure. the U.S. has been absent for quite some time. Um, and uh, Well, I think a good example of the impact of foreign aid was the, uh, the George Bush uh, PEPFAR program. Uh, there's still uh, a ton of goodwill left over from that. that indeed. Well, Jeremy, no, uh, no, but, but, but you know, but 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 to your but, but to your point, I was this is now many years ago. I was in uh, a Central American country, and I happened to have an opportunity to meet with a former president of of the country. And I remember he he was like somewhat resentful to the U.S. He said, you know, there was this time when it was all about us, and you were always here, and, and the country was giving us aid and helping us do this and do that. But once Soviet Union collapsed. And you, in that Cold War somewhat ended, it's like we abandoned Central America in, in his mind. And it, the same thing with Africa. We never saw the value in it. And so as a result, we just were absent. Now, I think they're seeing some value, maybe in response to China, maybe in response to, you know, um, rare earth minerals or whatever it is that, you know, they found in Africa. Uh, you know, there seems to be some interest in it. But I agree with you. I, I, I think it's, it's not just the, again, I'm not trying to be political. It was not just the Trump administration. You're, you're right, you're right. Jeremy, a question for you from Jim Shepard. Uh, he asked, do you have any insight on how the Chinese population views the Chinese government's managing of the COVID-19 crisis from a strictly China internal perspective? And uh, along with that, let me uh, pose a question from uh, Kinao Gaite. Uh, what is the likelihood of the U.S. and the international community making China pay for COVID-19? Um, okay, so I, it's always tricky to say what the Chinese people think because, you know, there's no independent polling and there's no voting and stuff like that. Uh, but based on my... Um, daily readings of the Chinese press and the, the stuff we publish and interviews we've done. I would say that in the urban centers, uh, there's a great deal of support for the Chinese government and people generally feel that they've done a very, very good job. That wasn't the case in the early months of, of, of the then epidemic in China. There was a lot of popular resentment against the government. Uh, the doctor Li Wenliang, who was the, you know, he's been called the whistleblowing doctor who was censured by the local cops in Wuhan for first discussing COVID-19 on, on his social media. Um, you know, he, he became a, a sort of popular hero. Um, 
and uh, there was a, a feeling for quite some time that there, were, that there really was quite a significant level of popular resentment. However, since then, uh, both through propaganda, uh, arresting people who have dissenting views, but also um, uh, whether you like the way they did it or not, the methods, the authoritarian methods they used or not, but what seems to have been an effective response, you know, it was the epicenter and now they seem to more or less have the thing under control. Um, that seems to have won them back all and more of the popular support that they may have lost. Um, so uh, what the unknown factor is that uh, there is a large, large number of migrant workers and other people uh, who you know, are going to go below the poverty line again perhaps for the first time, you know, in their lives. Um, and it's unclear what effect this is going to have on views of the government. But certainly for people living in cities, uh, right now, uh, if anything, support for the government is at an all-time high, I would say. Um, and uh, the government is egging this on uh, with nationalistic propaganda and pointing out how many people are dying in the United States and how many people have been infected, which, sure. uh, you know, <laughs> what can we say? Um, the John, second question, let, me, let me turn to, to John, if I could, uh, to get uh, a, a legal perspective here on the, the question about uh, making China pay. I know there have been uh, some uh, lawsuits filed. Uh, I believe there's uh, legislation uh, being considered to uh, make it possible for those lawsuits to go forward. What's, what's your take on this, make them pay? Right. Uh, so from the U.S. perspective, uh, we have a law that would, you know, unless there's some real narrow exception that would apply, which I don't think would apply here, uh, China would be immune uh, to such a to, to these lawsuits. I think Missouri has filed one in Arkansas, said they were going – something, some other southern – I think a southern state said they were going to file uh, as, as well. And I, I just don't – we don't think that they're going to be, you know, uh, uh, you know, taken very well. Uh, and so – in that sense, I, th I think that's kind of a dead, you know, a dead issue. Now, it's interesting if, in fact, because there's some. I think uh, our senator, Marsha Blackburn, I think she was, uh, and I think there are some senate, there are some folks in the House too from Texas and somewhere else. I think they're both talking about proposing legislation that would strip yeah. China of its sovereign immunity here in the United States. Now, that sounds great, right? Oh, China did something. We should hold them accountable. But then again. You think of all the things that the United States has been accused of doing. I'm not even saying that they did, okay, in other countries. Is that really how we want to be treated, where a country can then pass laws in their own country and say, well, you're not immune? And that, again, this goes back to what we were first talking about, this tit-for-tat kind of thing. There's other ways to address it. Um, and, and really, uh, you're going to prove China did what? Uh, maybe China could have handled it better. Um, but there's a lot of things that we could have handled better. Are you going to blame us because maybe we didn't, I don't know, do something here in the United States in our own response? Well, I think, I think there are people, maybe, uh, people you know, making a move in that direction domestically. Well, I mean, you know, so, yeah, so what well, I'm just saying. So, I mean, I, I agree. So, but my point is, it, it, this is going to get us nowhere except cause China to react in a very negative and adverse way uh, in response, which again then hurts the Americans and I think ultimately hurts Chinese. And it doesn't really lead to anything. So, but I think legally, uh, as, as the law currently stands, 
I, I don't think they'll have much of a success, um, you know, with with a lawsuit like that. And, and again, if they if they lift um, uh, China's sovereign immunity, that's a you know that again there'll be fights over that too. So uh, I, I don't think it's going to go very far. But you know, but it makes good pol uh, politics, especially in electoral season. So. Last question, uh, Jeremy. You mentioned the authoritarian uh, situation and the uh, internments and so forth. Marietta Velikova asks uh, she would like to hear your opinion on political freedom and human rights. Uh, she has a couple more questions in there, but that's uh, the gist of it. With uh, the ending, can the Communist Party maintain the contract of no political freedom as long as economic wealth is being created in the 21st century? Well, I mean, so so far they've done a pretty good job against many people's expectations at uh, allowing a relatively free economy with a highly controlled political and you know media system uh, where there's no freedom of media, freedom of press, freedom of religion. Um, and they seem to have managed to keep most of the population uh, satisfied enough to not, you know, um, take out the pitchforks. Um, so I wouldn't like to bet against the Communist Party doing this uh, for perhaps quite some time to come. Um, maybe one day there will be a reckoning. Um, I, I think uh, authoritarian countries are always very stable until one day they suddenly aren't. Um, but I, I wouldn't like to peg the day. I wouldn't like to, you know, say which day that will be. Um, and uh, yeah. All right. Well, um, John Scanapieco, Jeremy Goldcorn, this has uh, been a rich dessert for those who already had their dinner. For, for you guys, I'm sure it's uh, margarita time. Uh, we thank <laughs> We we thank you uh, so much. I'm, I'm sure that uh, this was uh, a better hour spent uh, here with you learning about the, what's going on in China than uh, than our friends who might be over on Broadway looking for a honky-tonk to open. Uh, so thanks. <laughs> it, it, won't, it won't be long now. The, the governor is, uh, is, is on his way. Um, just a, a couple of uh, last things to remember. Uh, if, uh, if you are all interested in tuning into uh, more great programming uh, tomorrow at uh, 4 p.m. Central Time, uh, 5 p.m. Eastern Time. We have a special edition of uh, Global Dialogue. Uh, it's called U.S.-Iran, U.S. Maximum Pressure Campaign, American and European Perspectives. And that will be a panel that will include uh, the moderator, uh, Ambassador Bill Lors, uh, U.S. Foreign Service retired ambassador to uh, Venezuela and Czechoslovakia, Dr. Gary Sick, uh, an, a renowned uh, specialist on Iran. Uh, he's at Columbia University. Uh, Ellie uh, Geronmaye uh, from the European Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, just uh, one more reminder, it is Giving Tuesday. There are still a few more hours left, or you could actually hold it over to tomorrow if, uh, if the spirit moves you. But please uh, consider uh, your World Affairs Council if you're visiting from around the country, or for those here in Tennessee, uh, please look at uh, tnwac.org slash donate, or take a look at uh, your iPhone, where you can dial 844-959-2934. And that's for those listening to our podcast uh, and uh, text uh, give and then whatever number you feel uh, that uh, you can share with us. 
lastly, we uh, once again want to thank the uh, World Affairs Councils of America, uh, Bill, Liz, Rachel, and the uh, Connecticut uh, World Affairs Council, uh, Megan and uh, Amanda, for not putting the world back together, but putting this uh, summit of uh, a special programming together. Uh, it's a terrific idea. I hope we do uh, we do more of this. Um, last notes, uh, anybody? John, Jeremy, th thanks again. Anything you'd like to add to close out? Thanks, John. Thanks, Pat. Yeah. And thank you to the audience. Okay. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. But I, I would say, but I would, I'd like to echo something that Jeremy said, and and educate yourself on these issues and, and really dig into this because it is so much more than what you're going to get from one of the two networks that, that seem to be blasting this stuff out uh, because this is much more complicated than that. And, 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 you know, you just, there's just so much more to know. And I think once we have a better understanding, then maybe we can influence our elected officials to do a better job. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't say it any better than that. Uh, thanks, John. And we will see uh, all of you again tomorrow at 4 p.m. Central Time uh, for our webinar on Iran. Uh, thanks again, uh, John and Jeremy, for really a stimulating conversation on uh, U.S.-China relations. And good night, everybody from Nashville. Thank you all.